I'd like you to stick your left hand out like this, and we're going to sing together this morning. We're going to sing that little chorus that we know so well. Remember, you're going to, we're going to sing and clap at the same time, and you're going to clap your, the person sitting on your right, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and the top of your hand twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up. That's good. All right, not too bad. Here we go. We're going to sing. Ready? Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that can be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Very good. Okay, now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is where I'd like to direct your attention. We're going to open our Bibles. We're going to read them. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to pray again. I, there's something that I should have prayed for earlier that I didn't. When we kneel like that, I try to pray briefly because I have old knees, I think, or something. But um, we should have prayed for the Niles. Mark and Stacey Niles are leaving this week to go to France. They'll beginning, be beginning their new ministry in the Basque region of France. And they specifically asked that we would pray for their children, Isaac, Maria, and Elliot, as they settle into this new area and try to make friends. So let's pray for uh, Isaac and Maria and Elliot this morning, shall we? Lord, we come before you. We acknowledge you have commanded us to go to the nations and speak in the name of Jesus Christ. That great commission comes with that wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus would be with us always, even unto the end of the age. He who has all power Uh, We come before you this morning, risen, reigning Lord Jesus, on behalf of these little children that we care about this morning. We think of Isaac and Maria and Elliot, and we pray for them as they leave their grandparents in Montana and their cousins and those they have known and gotten closer to over the last few months, and here they are on another move, this, their third country that they will live in, in a new region. Father, we pray you know what is ahead for them, but we ask that you would show them mercy and we ask that you would provide uh, friends for them. This is a simple thing. Lord, would you raise up uh, two little boys and a little girl in the Basque region of France who would befriend Isaac and Maria and Elliot. Lord, we pray for Mark and Stacy that they would have great joy and skill and wisdom in communicating to their children that the reason they move and leave is for Christ's sake. And they're probably too young to perceive and understand this, but Lord, we do ask that you would help them to see the glory in doing things for Jesus' sake, these little children. May they rejoice in the sacrifices that they endure 
for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we here this morning with your word open to us, teach us, feed your sheep, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read from verses 13 through 20. So you follow along as I read Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Here's what the text says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, John. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. When I took my first philosophy class in college, a professor stood before us and he told us that there were three questions that every person has to ask on the way to maturity, on the way to living a full life. There's three questions you have to ask and answer, he said. Here they are. The first one is, who am I? Next, where am I going? And third, who is going with me? Who am I? Where am I going? And who is going with me? Those are good questions. They're helpful questions. Us, we 18-year-old students who thought we knew everything and really knew nothing, sitting in that classroom, benefited from thinking that way. And yet, in this text that I just read, there is a uh, more important question, actually. Something that is a, a question that is more important and prior to the three that I just mentioned. It's a question that Jesus asked in verse 15. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? I think that's the most important question that anybody can ask and answer. And actually, by, by saying that, I'm tipping my hand a little bit at what I think the answer is. I believe, and I think the Bible teaches, that Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived. It doesn't matter who you think Charlemagne was, or what you know about Eleanor of Aquitaine, or Kublai Khan or Mahatma Gandhi or John F. Kennedy. It doesn't matter if, if we had a record of them saying, who do you think I am? It wouldn't matter, the answer. Yet when Jesus asks the question, the story is completely different. In fact, this is a question weighted with eternal significance. Who do you say that I am? Uh, setting this question here before us this morning reminds me of a movie I saw a long time ago. I rented it from a video store. There's a clue that it was a long time ago. And uh, I rented it because the reviews said it was hilarious. I thought it was strange. I don't think my sense of humor is sophisticated enough to understand it. It was made in 1980 by a South African film company. It's the highest grossing film ever made by a South African film studio. It was called The Gods Must Be Crazy. And in this movie, uh, it it focuses on a uh, a tribe in Botswana that's really isolated. They don't have much contact with the outside world, practically none, as a matter of fact. And and as the movie opens, there's a pilot. He flies over the um, 
uh, the village and he drops out of the airplane a Coke bottle, an empty Coke bottle. And miraculously, it survives the fall and one of the villagers finds it. And for the the first uh, third of the movie, you see the villagers trying to figure out what this thing is and what you do with it. They love it. It's it's smoother than anything they've ever seen. It's clear, like glass. I don't have glass. It's just amazing. And they find all kinds of great uses for it. If you blow over it, you can make music. They figure that out. Uh, Because of its nice, round, consistent shape, they use it to make tools. It's a very useful object. Um, Unfortunately, they figure out after a little bit that there's a whole village and only one of these strange objects, and and they, they start to fight over it a little bit, get angry, envious of one another, and they come to the conclusion that the gods have dropped it from the sky to them, not as a blessing, but actually as a curse. They hate this bomb. What they never figure out, unfortunately for them, is that what the bottle is for, that it is actually the container of that sweet, bubbly, brown liquid that is known to the rest of the world as Coca-Cola. They never really discover what the bottle is for. They don't know. It reminds me of how many people experience life in this world. We're creative enough and clever enough to put the resources before us to good use But without the answer, I think, to this question, people never really truly know what this life is for. Think about marriage. It's Valentine's Day, right? Why do people enter into relationships? All kinds of reasons. They're lonely. Uh, it's, It's what they're supposed to do. You know, you reach a certain age, you're just supposed to get married. That's the way it is. Um... There's people who have expectations of them. Their parents want grandkids. Uh, uh, Maybe they're looking for unfettered physical intimacy and they're they're looking for marriage for that reason. Financial security, a whole host of reasons people enter into marriage. But until you understand what marriage is really for, marriage is really a, a picture of Jesus himself, you're going to, as long as you treat marriage for something other than its intended purpose, you're going to weigh it down with expectations that will not fulfill you, but that will actually end up crushing your relationship. So this question in verse 15 is so important, and it's set before us, and it's actually one of the ways that these eight verses that I read intersect with us uh, there's, there's more here, though, this morning that I want to draw your attention to. These verses, not only do they tell us who Jesus is, but they tell us what Jesus does and how we respond to it. And it's actually those two questions, those two other elements here in this passage that bring us to this particular text uh, today. Uh, these, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible when we think about the issue of belonging and what it means to be part of a local church. Uh, we started a, a topic uh, a few weeks ago. We started talking about church membership. And I admitted that this is probably not <laughs> what you think of when you think of the most important topics to set before a congregation. Uh, we finished the book of Acts in December. Lord willing, we're going to start the book of Hosea in March. And in between, usually when we do long book studies like that, I, I try to do some topical, relevant issues, and uh, some pressing issues before the congregation. We try to spend a few weeks on issues like that. So I asked the elders several months ago for some input. I'm going to finish Acts. What do you think we should talk about? 
And uh, one of the elders said to me, we try to practice biblical church membership, but I still get a lot of questions about it. I think you should talk about that. And I said, really? That does not sound very interesting. Then I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks after that, and a very seasoned pastor said, there are two things you can't talk about enough in a church. One of them is the gospel, the story of who Jesus is, and the other one is church membership. (laughs) I said, really? So here we are. And actually, one of my goals is I want to show you why this matters. And I want to demonstrate to you the connection between the practice of biblical church membership and actually living the Christian life. And this is a passage that can help. In fact, it's one of the most important passages. We always go over it in detail in church membership classes. And and actually, I want to show you that church membership is rooted in who Jesus is and what he does. And actually that it is commanded here in this text. Well, I want to make that case. So let me show you. And I'm going to unfold this text under those three headings that I mentioned a few minutes ago. We're going to start by talking about who Jesus is. What does this passage say about who Jesus is? We're going to answer the question he asked in verse 15. Here's how I want to answer it. I want to say this text says... I don't want to say this. I want to, say, I want to show you what the text says. The text says... Uh, who Jesus is, that he is the one at the center of God's plans. Jesus is the one at the center of God's plans. Now, let's, let's, let me explain that to you. In verse 13, Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus takes the disciples north to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a town about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a region that was dominated by Gentiles. There were not a lot of Jews there, which means that Jesus was not nearly as famous up in this region There were not people coming to him, clamoring for him to heal them or do miracles or to teach. He took his disciples. It seems like he's taking them on a uh, leadership retreat. He he wants to uh, do some some private teaching with them. And he, he gets to this question where he says, Who do people say that I am? He gets a lot of answers, doesn't he? Most of them have to do with prophets. You're some sort of prophet. You're some sort of spokesman for God. People are talking about you like you're John the Baptist. That's what Herod Antipas thought, right? Well, you can learn that later in the book of Matthew. Uh, the Old Testament talks about the, how the prophet Elijah is going to come again. Some people think he's the prophet Elijah return. Or there was a Jewish tradition that Jeremiah the prophet was going to return. Some people think he's Jeremiah or just one of the other prophets again here, here with us. Jesus asked this question, who do people say that I am? 2,000 years ago, and it's a question you can still ask people today, and you'll get a host of answers, won't you? Who do people say that Jesus is? Uh, Everyone seems to lay claim to him in some way, don't they? Jesus appears to be one of the most malleable characters in all of history. People use him for all kinds of reasons. I saw not too long ago, it's uh, obviously, (laughs) this is news, it's not news, campaign season, I saw a sign not too long ago that said, I've been following a Jewish socialist all my life and now I finally get to vote for one. It was a Bernie Sanders ad. This is Jesus, right? The Jewish socialist. Scott McKnight is a teacher. He's a New Testament scholar. And when his students uh, come to him for the first time, Uh, he gives them a test. It's a test about who Jesus is. It's a 24-question test about what they think Jesus is like. Um, Questions like, is Jesus moody? 
Is Jesus outgoing or is he an introvert? Does Jesus ever get nervous? Questions like that. What do you think Jesus is like? And they answer the questions. And, and then a couple weeks later, he gives them another test, 24 questions. And, and this, though, time, this test is about themselves. And they don't realize this because the wording has changed a little bit, but the questions are actually identical. And he takes both sets of tests and he compares them. And, and Scott McKnight is not the only person who does, has done this. This test has been given uh, by statisticians and sociologists and other professors and all kinds of different places. And what they have discovered is that almost everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. He's the life of the party or not, depending on whether they think they are the life of the party or not. He's uh, shy based on whether or not they think they're shy or not. Scott McKnight said this, The test results suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case we try to make Jesus like ourselves. Be careful, Tim Keller warns us, be careful if the God you worship never challenges you or questions your assumptions. Remember what Anne Lamott said. Remember, she said, be careful if the God you worship hates the same people as you do. We're inclined to make Jesus into our own image. So what does he say about himself? Well, he affirms what Peter says in verse 16. In fact, he says what Peter said in verse 16 is divine revelation. And Peter says to him, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Two different phrases, both of them rooted in the Old Testament. Both of them have to do with the fact that Jesus is at the center of God's plan. Now, the word Messiah, we're familiar with this. The word Messiah it literally means anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. When Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem and looked for a hotel, they did not register as Mary and Joseph Christ. Okay, that is not Jesus' last name. That is his title. Uh, anointed one. The Old Testament prophesy, uh, prophecies speak of someone who would come who would fulfill all of God's plans and he would be the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, when Peter says the son of the living God, now we're trained, we're trained in the Bible, so when he says you're the son of the living God, we are inclined to think, first of all, of Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as if Peter is saying of Jesus, I know who you are, you're the Son of you're the God in the flesh. I'm not sure that's what Peter is doing here. I'm not sure that Peter knows enough yet to know that. I, he may be referring, I think he's actually referring to a promise that God made to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, God said to King David, David, you're going to sit on the throne and you're going to have sons who are going to rule after you. One of them is going to be a significant son. His kingdom is going to last forever and, and he's going to be my son. I'm going, to, I'm going to treat him like he's my own son. So, <coughs> so there is woven into the Old Testament this expectation that there'll be a Davidic king who will rule forever on David's throne and he will be like God's son. I think that's what Peter is thinking. <laughs> what Peter didn't realize and what they don't realize at the old yet is how much of a son this son of David is actually going to be. <laughs> God's son. So that, that, I think that's what he's at. You're, you're the one at the center of God's plans. Now, 
Peter says these things, wonderful. What we understand, though, immediately from this is that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about, which is not unusual for Peter, is it? He says more than he knows. Usually Peter says less than he knows, but here he says more than he knows. Look what happens down here in verse 21, right? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is the one at the center of God's plan. Well, what does that mean? He's the one at the center of God's plans because He is the one who has come to die and rise again. That's not what any of the disciples expected. Not at all. That's not what happens to Messiahs. Messiahs are not supposed to die. It's unthinkable. See, but God had made a promise a long time ago. He had made a promise in the earliest chapters of the Bible, and he said that a champion would come, his champion would come, and he would rescue human beings from the mess that we have made of the world. God made the world perfect. He made it good. He made it satisfying, fulfilling, joy-filled, safe, secure. And, And we introduced mess into the world. You've all had this experience, I think, probably at least once or twice. You've hosted people in your home for, for some reason, a party or an event, a dinner, and you, you do work, you clean your house, you put everything where it's supposed to go. It's just amazing how good your house looks. The company comes, you feed them, you play games with them, you do whatever you do when your company comes over. They leave, and you look at what once was your perfectly clean house, and you wonder what happened. How did these people make such a mess of this house? If they were little children, you're going to be finding things that you own scattered throughout the house for the rest of your life. What happened? How did this mess get made? God made the world perfectly. Everything was perfect. Everything worked perfectly. Everything was in His place. And then we came and we did much more damage than your host, your guests, your party guests ever do. In fact, our parents, Adam and Eve, in God's good world, told God that they knew what was better, what was best. They knew how to manage their own lives better than God knew. Oh, there is within every single one of us this heart inclination toward that. I can run my life better than God can. I know what's best for me. I can make decisions on my own. It's destructive. The Bible calls that sin. Sin isn't just what you do. It's this heart inclination that says to God, I know better. And it ruins lives. In fact, the consequences of sin are death. God is going to fix the mess that we made. Human beings are part of that mess. Jesus came. He, on the cross, bore our sins took the punishment that we deserved, died, and rose again. He, he came out of death. He destroyed it from the inside out. He ripped it apart from the inside 
out. That's who he is. He's the one who came to die and rise again. That's what it means when the Bible says that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And the question that the text sets before every single one of us is, do you believe that? That he's the one at the center of God's plans, that he has come to rescue you from your sin. Jesus has some harsh words for you if you will not believe that. In fact, if you want to live in denial that you have any sin to commit or that you need no forgiveness, Jesus says that's actually satanic. It's not Christian. You're looking only, Peter, at the world from the perspective of human beings, short-sighted, self-centered human beings. You're not thinking about God and His love and His wisdom in the world that He made. Do you believe what this says about Jesus. Jesus is not the one that can be molded to your cause. He came to reconfigure your life. Will we listen to his description of who he is? That's the first thing that we should think about. Now let's move on and think next here in this passage about what he does. So we've talked about who Jesus is. Now what, what does he do? The text tells us that he forms his own people. He forms his own people. Or if you want to use the words of this text here, he builds his church. He builds his church. He forms his own people, and then he gives them authority, which he expects them to use. Verse 18 is the first place in the New Testament that that the word church is used. Now, the word church in Greek means called out ones. And there's been a lot of great sermons about how all that means, what that means, that we're called out from the world and we're called out from darkness. That's not true. That's not what the word means at all. Just, it's a generic word. It refers to an assembly. The book of Acts uses it to describe a town meeting. It's an assembly. The church is Jesus' assembly. Christians meet together. This is a crucial part of who we are. If you're not meeting together with other believers, you should question whether or not you're a Christian at all because that's what Christians do. We assemble. Now, what, Peter, uh, what Jesus says about Peter in verse 18 is, is rather controversial, isn't it? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Um, but this, this is the statement, this is the foundation of the statement that the Roman Catholic Church uses to defend the primacy of the Pope. The Pope sits in Peter's chair. I was teaching a class of college freshmen once, and they asked me that question, what does that mean the Pope is sitting in Peter's chair? They said, what does, the chair, what does Peter's chair look like? I said, well, he was a fisherman, so it's got an aluminum frame and kind of that webbing. <laughs> no, this is not a literal chair. The Pope has Peter's authority that he... He can speak infallibly that he, that he is the supreme pontiff of the church, that he has the authority of the keys. But those elements are not actually in this verse. Uh, we read here, just, just a few minutes after this praise, right, for Peter, um, this indictment, doesn't you get behind me, Satan. It's not a good sign if the first vicar of your church is called Satan by Jesus. It's just not a good sign. Well, um, so ever since the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, we have downplayed this verse a lot. We shouldn't. Jesus is speaking about Peter's important role in the early days of the church. Peter did play a very important role in the first days of the church, didn't he? The book of Acts, he's the one who stands. There's parallelism here. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, and you are Peter. 
And you're going to play a foundational role in the beginning of this church. But notice here, we shouldn't separate Peter from his confession of who Jesus is. This is central to Jesus' work. On the basis of this God-revealed confession of who Jesus is, Jesus will form his own people. And this assembly is going to be invincible. Even the gates of hell are not going to be able to overpower it. And it's going to be authoritative. It's going to have power to bind and to loose. We'll talk about that more in a minute. I wonder if your, your translation struggles with verse 19 a little bit. Does your translation struggle with it? Mine does. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And it's got a little footnote. And at the bottom, uh, my translation says, or will have been bound. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Hmm, which is it? There's a relationship here between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. What is that relationship? The grammar doesn't help us a lot. If it says, will have been bound, which is a legitimate translation, um, heaven acts and earth responds. The legitimate translation. Mine says, will be bound, so earth acts and it also is happening in heaven Does earth act first and then heaven affirms? There's no answer here in the text. The text itself does not tell us. The text, in fact, is not about causation, where the cause is. It's just about the complementarity between it. Earth's actions and heaven's actions are contemporaneous. They're happening together. This is real authority that Jesus is giving the church. Jesus forms his people, and they are an invincible people. I wonder if this changes how you think about the church. Invincible. It's odd, isn't it? That hardly seems possible. A church is such a mess, isn't it? Uh, Barna did a survey in 2013. They went to 1,000 American adults, and they asked them a question, what do you think about going to church? 30% of Americans say attending church is very important. 40% are ambivalent about attending church. And 30% say that it's not important at all. So those who are ambivalent, those great in the middle, who don't really care one with the other, uh, don't go to church for two reasons. One, they said, I find God elsewhere and it's not personally relevant to me. They focused in particular in this survey on millennials, this younger uh, generation uh, under 35. And, and the millennials say they don't like church for three reasons. The moral failures of church leaders, hypocrisy, and the church's irrelevance. One of the questions they asked during the survey was, um, what makes your faith grow? And the church didn't even make the top ten list of what people said when they talked about their growing faith. Not a good sign. Jesus here takes responsibility for the church. I will build my church. If this text is true, and if Jesus really does take personal responsibility for the church like this, in fact, if Jesus loves the church like a bride loves his, like a groom loves his bride, it's impossible to have a relationship with Jesus without a connection to a church. 
that closed-minded or narrow or exclusivistic? Remember what this passage says. Jesus is at the center of God's plans. And he turns all of that attention of those followers to the people that he will form. Do you want to be in on who Jesus really is? Then you cannot ignore the church that he builds. This is what he said. This is what he does. Now, the case that I'm building for church membership over these weeks, it may not convince you. I may not convince you uh, from a biblical perspective for you to embrace this. But if nothing else, I want you to notice here in this passage where Jesus' attention is, where his work is focused, his invincibility, his authority is most clearly on display in his church. And if you want in on what Jesus is doing, you cannot ignore the church. That's what Jesus does. He forms his people. Now, finally, let's consider how we respond to that. How do we respond to that? We use the authority that we have to include and exclude. We use the authority we have to include and exclude. Think with me about the keys for a minute. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what do you do with keys? Keys are tools of access. You open doors. You open locked doors with keys and you let people in. And I think that access is related to binding and loosing, which again, we'll talk about in just a moment. This is what the church does. When we preach the gospel, we are proclaiming who Jesus is and we're pleading with people to believe it. Jesus is the center of God's plans, the one who's come to die and rise again. And if you believe it, so believing, you will find entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We're heralds of this message. This is the power of the keys to proclaim the word. We want everyone to hear about Jesus and we want them to believe. And if you hear and believe this message that Jesus entrusted to the church, there is access for you to the kingdom of heaven. And it is inevitably an including and an excluding work. It's inevitable that some people will believe and some people will not. It's a very general sense here as we look at this passage where Peter is giving us the authority. You have the authority to proclaim who I am and call people to believe and then they have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's very general. I think actually we can be more specific than that. Even more specific in this passage. To see that, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 18 and I want to show you a passage of scripture that we're going to look at in more detail in a couple weeks But this passage in chapter 18 is very closely aligned with Matthew chapter 16. So it's good to look at it here. So Matthew 18, verse 15. I want to read Matthew 18, 15. You're familiar with this? We're going to get more familiar in a couple weeks, as I said. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Here's the second place where Jesus uses the word church. And it's also the next place that we find these words bind and loose 
together. And in this context, he's talking not just about the church's general call to all people to believe and to come into the kingdom of heaven. He is talking very specifically about specific people in a specific location, a specific assembly. Real people that you know with a real problem. What's the real problem? Well, sin the real problem. Not the sin itself, actually. That's not the real problem here. Our church is full of sinners. In fact, um, it's a requirement of church membership that you be a sinner. You can't refuse to be a sinner and become a member of our church. We sin a lot. The problem here is not that a brother or sister is sinning. The problem here is what they do in response to it or response to someone who comes and talks to them about it. They refuse to listen, the text says. They refuse to listen. There's details here that need to be fleshed out. We're going we're to go through this in, in a little bit. But notice what happens. This unlistening person, he moves from being a brother or sister to being a pagan or a tax collector. In the text, they move from being someone that you embrace very closely as a member of the family to being someone who is a pagan or a tax collector. Now, what does that mean, pagan or tax collector? It doesn't mean take them out and stone them. That's not what it means. Or uh, uh, let the air out of their tires, hate them. That's, that's not what it means. What did Jesus do with pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. He prayed for them. He talked to them, but he didn't embrace them as brother or sister. This is what it means to bind or loose. You bind your family tight to you, but a brother or sister who refuses to listen in the face of confrontation about their sin is loosed. Jesus, the one at the center of God's plan, is building his church, and he authorizes that church to bind people who agree with us about who Jesus is, or make this confession about who Jesus is. We bind them to ourselves. They become brothers and sisters by their confession of who Jesus is. And we exclude those who claim to follow him, but will not uh, listen in the face of loving confrontation. Now, more needs to be, to be said about this, but notice this foundation here. Why do we bind believers to us as covenant members? Because Jesus told us to. He gave us the authority to do it, and he told us to. When we vote to welcome somebody into membership, as we did a couple weeks ago at our congregational meeting, when we shake hands with them at the back of the auditorium, as we're going to do in a couple weeks, Lord willing, um, we, uh, when we vote and when we have them sign the book and when we interview them, we are trying to do what Jesus authorized us to do. We are, we are going through the process of binding them to us. Now just think for a minute here with me about this and the ongoing relevance of this. You come into the church upon your confession of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one at the center of God's plans who has come to die and rise again. He's the Savior. That's the basis for how you get in, by that confession. And, and together we meet and, and, and worship with the goal that he will increasingly become central to who we are. Here's how church membership relates to actually following Jesus. You get in by your confession of the centrality of Jesus and your life here among us is all about the centrality of Jesus and magnifying it and spreading it and increasing it. 
Everyone is welcome to join in this confession of who Jesus is and thus be welcomed into our communion. Earl Palmer was a pastor. And he was listening one day to uh, some critics, people who had very little time for church. They, they thought the church is full of scandal, the church is full of problems, the church is irrelevant. What good can our church really do, our church? What good can it do? Well, Earl Palmer wants you to think about a band, a high school band. I was a member of our marching band, our high school marching band. Uh, we were terrible. We were We were terrible. Um, our band director didn't like marching band, really, and it showed. He put no effort into it at all. Um, we were so bad that we couldn't march and play at the same time. So we would march in parades holding our instruments, and then the band director would stop us, and we'd play. And then when we were done playing, we would resume marching. The town parade stopped so the high school band could play their music. Well, one of the reasons that we were so bad was because uh, our director insisted that we play the music of John Philip Sousa. Oh, John Philip Sousa. John Philip Sousa music is not easy to play. It was not good, the way we played it. Um, Professionals play John Philip Sousa on the 4th of July, and it's beautiful. Our band sounded nothing like professional instrumentalists when they play John Philip Sousa. Why would, we do, why would we subject ourselves and our audience to our rendition of the Stars and Stripes Forever made poor John Philip Sousa turn over in his grave every year, right? Why would we do that? It was the only John Philip Sousa that some of those people in my town ever heard. Our piccolo was the only piccolo that they ever heard playing that high, trilling verse. As bad as we were, we were actually connecting people to the greatness of John Philip Sousa. That's the way it is with almost every local church that I know. Wildly imperfect. In some ways, amazingly incompetent. But stunningly still, Jesus' chosen instrument to connect people with his love. When we invite people to join the church, we're saying... Pick up an instrument, join the band, let's play. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and it is astounding, astounding in light of the greatness of who Jesus is that he would give us any sort of authority to do anything in his name. And yet we hold these keys, this privilege of proclaiming the gospel and welcoming people, binding them to us and loosing when necessary. That's astounding. And yet we are thankful to you for your mercy and your grace. We are thankful to you for the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, that you sent to uh, equip us for this work. We're thankful to you for the gifts that you have given so that we might speak and serve the grace of God to one another. Lord, we want to be faithful in representing our great Savior to those around us, so we pray that you would unite us to one another to that end. Brothers and sisters, we all share in this mission that you have given us. Thank you for that privilege. Help us to cherish it and and come to it with 
sobriety, seriousness, and joy. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, saying, Amen. Please stand again with us. The song's a little, the song's a little bit different. Um, usually we sing songs to and about Christ. Um, this song's about Christ, but we're really kind of singing it to each other. So um, it's the servant song. We've sung it, sung it before, but um, we're actually singing it about and to each other. Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. 